0: The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.
1: Good morning, church. Today's reading is coming from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. You can follow along with me with the Bibles under your seats on page 939 or on the screen behind me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This has been the reading of God's word, and you may be seated.
0: Good morning. My name is uh, Brian Weiler, and I am a member here at DOXA. Um, three weeks ago, we started a series on the book of Romans, and today we are going to be in Romans 1:18 to 20, and the topic is the wrath of God. So Randy, um, last time I spoke was on the topic of suffering, and today I get to teach on the wrath of God. And uh, Randy told me that this is not on purpose, but I am beginning to think it is. Uh, before we dive into the text, let's pray together. God, you are so good. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together to grow and to learn more about you, Lord. We thank you for your word, because your word brings life. And I pray that you would lead us, guide us, correct us, teach us this morning. Jesus, we um, are nothing apart from you, and so we rejoice in all you've done and all you've accomplished. And I pray that you would continue to just lead us this morning. We praise you, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Romans is a a pretty incredible letter. Um, And the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Yet Romans is considered to be his most ordered, complete, and comprehensive letter that he'd ever written. And it's important to keep in mind that Paul is writing this letter to a church in Rome and to a group of people whom he's probably never met. He opens the letter, with a powerful introduction and he makes it clear that his motive in wanting to write this letter, and his motive in wanting to even visit this church is not for selfish gain. He simply wants to preach the gospel to them. When you read the introduction of this letter we can easily see that Paul loves this church. He loves them, he loves them so much that he doesn't hold back with his words. He speaks the truth to them. And Paul understands that love is an action word. It's not simply an expression or some idea. And Paul knows the greatest way to love another person is to serve them. And the greatest way to serve another person is by bringing the gospel to them. And Paul says in verse 15, Romans one fifteen, that he is eager to preach the gospel to them. So Paul is eager to bring the truth to them. You know, last week, we looked at uh, verse 16 and 17, and you could say that these two verses are the fundamental foundation of the entire book of Romans. The foundation of the gospel is the power of salvation and the righteousness of God revealed through Christ and received by faith. So far, so good. Paul is opening this letter and saying, hey, I have some pretty good news. However, in verse 18, the tone of the letter begins to shift a little. Paul starts to explain why the gospel is good news. And Paul doesn't hold back in explaining why. Let's read it, reread it together. Starting in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul, right here, what he's doing here, he's making God's position in regard to sin and unrighteousness very clear. Paul is emphatically making the point that the wrath of God is a direct result of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now these are terms that, We don't hear a lot. I mean, when's the last time you heard somebody say, like, hey, dude, that was really unrighteous? We may not use the word unrighteousness, but you and I know what it means to lie, to gossip, to lust, to envy. And those of us who are parents in here, you know what it's like to kinda lose your lid and flip out on your kids. The word unrighteousness is simply talking about our sin, the dark part of our heart that we pretend doesn't exist. What would people see? if they followed you around with a camera 24 hours a day. Can you imagine if the same thing could happen in our mind, recording our thoughts? My point is this, you and I may not, we might not use the word unrighteousness, but we practice it. Not too long ago, uh, Amazon uh, made public headlines by coming out with what they called our positions. Amazon publicly declared their positions And with a lot of uh, hot-button issues in, in our world, like federal minimum wage, corporate tax, and a lot of other things, Amazon wanted to make their positions very clear in regard to those things. Well, Paul is making God's position really clear. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Not some, all ungodliness and unrighteousness. See, God doesn't waver in his position or his response to sin and evil. No matter the size of the sin, God is against it. You are condemned. I am condemned. We all deserve the wrath of God. God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And Wayne Grudem sums up this point by saying, God's wrath means that he intensely hates sin. God's position is so firm that we can see in Genesis chapter 3 that he literally kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and from his presence as a result of their disobedience. Now, I don't know about you, but I've done a lot worse things than take an apple from the wrong tree. Before we go any further, let's pause for a moment and define what the wrath of God is and what it is not. And before I do, I just have to say I am not an expert on this subject. In fact, it's been very humbling to study and learn about God's wrath. It's actually deepened my understanding of God's grace, and it's grow in my understanding of God's character and nature. And My hope is that as we grow together in our understanding of God's wrath, that it would motivate us to live and respond differently in regard to our own sin. And it would strengthen our personal and corporate worship of Christ. So we often think about God's wrath and we think it's like our wrath. You know, when someone blatantly cuts you off on 501, how do you typically respond? We think God responds like us. You know, we think God is going to like flip us the bird and lightning bolts from heaven are going to come down on us. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger. There is. But too often than not, human anger comes from a place of unrighteousness. Human anger, our anger, is often irrational and uncontrollable. It is filled with animosity and a desire for revenge. Again, God's wrath is not like our wrath. God doesn't underreact or overreact when it comes to our sin. He has made his position very clear. The wrath of God is the appropriate response to sin and evil. However, however, it's important to understand that God is not a God of wrath. The Bible reveals that God is a God of love and 1 John uh, 4.8 tells us this. So how can this be? If God is love... How can he display wrath toward us because of our sin? Well, it is because he is holy and he does all things for his glory. God rules the world in such a way that will bring him maximum glory. If God's glory is the most important thing to God, then it means he must act justly and judge all sin. He must respond with wrath. If I were to throw a rock into a lake, a perfectly still lake, no matter the size of the rock, it's going to make a ripple effect in the water. When we throw sin at a holy and perfect God, the ripple effect is God's wrath. 1 John 1.5 says this, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God's wrathful response toward sin is good. It is right. It is what makes his uh, light shine even brighter. I mean, think about it. What kind of God would God be if he didn't hate sin and respond with wrath toward it? He would not be a God worthy of our praise and worship. He would not be a just and good God. God. And it would diminish everything that transpired on the cross with Jesus. The wrath of God is not an emotional overreaction or underreaction. It magnifies his glory and his holiness and his purity. See, the Bible is clear. Every person deserves the wrath of God because every person has sinned against the holy God. So, If God's response to evil and sin is with wrath, what is our response to it? When we are confronted with our own moral failure and face-to-face with our unrighteousness, how do we respond? Verse 18 gives us insight into how most people respond. Let's read it again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, our default position as human beings is to suppress the truth. You and I, we do not naturally seek out the truth. We actually try to suppress it. And how do we suppress the truth? We suppress the truth in regards to our own sin. We think it's not a big deal. We suppress the truth about our need for a savior. We pretend we have things all figured out We are really, really good at doing things on our own strength, and we can suppress the truth about God's wrath. And when we suppress the truth, it will naturally have a consequence. Whether you are saved by the grace of God or not, if you suppress the truth about who God is, you suppress the truth about your own sin, if you start to suppress his word in your life, if you try to suppress God's will for your life, you are suppressing your own life. Squelching and pushing down the truth will keep you on a path of self destruction. And self destruction is choosing your will over God's will. If you are suppressing the truth in any way, you are suppressing your own life. It's kind of ironic that we try to crush and push down the very thing that will lead us and give us freedom we try to get rid of the very thing that will give our dead hearts life. listen to how Jesus responded to a bunch of Jews who were suppressing the truth. And he said to them in John 8, 32, if you abide in in my word, you are truly my disciple, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A person who is set free recognizes their need for a savior. They recognize their utter hopelessness and inability to fix themselves. They recognize they deserve, they deserve the righteous wrath of a holy God. A person who is set free doesn't try to suppress the truth. They let the truth of the gospel begin to suppress their desire to even live in sin. This, this is so simple, yet it is so easily missed. When we try to push down the truth in our life, The result is more and more ungodliness and unrighteousness. So what is the opposite of suppressing the truth? It is letting the truth rise up. Letting the truth rise up. And as the truth rises up in our life, it will begin to change how we think, how we act, how we live. The truth, the word of God, the truth of the gospel will start to suppress our desire to live in sin and we'll start living with our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. When the truth rises up, our thoughts will begin to align with God's thoughts, and our actions will bring him glory and honor. So how do we let the truth rise up in our life? Well, for one, we need to ask God to reveal the areas where we are sinning, and areas where we are suppressing the truth. And we might not even be aware of certain areas that we're suppressing the truth. And we ask God, beg of him, Lord, reveal these things to me. And when those areas are revealed, we need to confess and we need to repent. 1 John nine says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pastor Chris Wiseman once shared, we are all only one authentic surrender away from a new beginning. We are all only one authentic surrender away from a new beginning. And we also need to surround ourselves with the truth. We need to prioritize biblical community and the word of God in our life. Listen to what Jesus prayed. He actually prayed this for all of us in John 17. Listen to what he said in John 17, 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The truth, the word of God sanctifies us, it makes us more like Christ. The word of God will suppress our desire to live in sin. The word of God is a gift. Now I'm not sure where you are this morning in your walk with Christ, and maybe you feel great and praise God if you do. But I have a feeling many of you in here are, are like me. I often think I need to fix myself or cleanse myself or you know, fix myself before I can be used by God. It's a daily struggle for me. I need the truth of the gospel every single day to wake me up. My default position is to try to suppress the truth and to live by my own strength. See, the way out of a spiritual um, funk is never to just work harder or try to become a better Christian. The way out of a spiritual funk is to let the truth rise up and float back up to the surface. It's to let the gospel back into its rightful place in your life. It's to focus on Christ, not yourself or your circumstances. But let me ask you this. How can we let the truth rise up if we are not spending time in God's word, we are not living in biblical community, or, and we're not confessing and repenting? See, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, the knowledge of God, if we don't suppress it, will lead us to see God's glory. And the glory of God is all around us. God is not. Hiding his glory or withholding the truth from an unbelieving world. Listen to what Romans verse 1,19 uh, and 20 says, "For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the beginning, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. See, what Paul's doing, he's referencing general revelation here. He is saying that every person who looks at a mountain range, sees a sunset, looks at, gazes up at the stars at night, can see and feel and sense God's deity, power, and glory. Paul is explaining that the invisible and unknowable God has plainly made himself knowable through creation. God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God is not hiding his glory from anyone. See, last week, last uh, Saturday, I did a triathlon race in North Carolina and it was a pretty, pretty big operation, it was a big race. Um, I wasn't sure what to expect, it was one of my first ones and I was a little nervous, I really was. I was nervous that at some point in this big race that I would get lost or take a wrong turn or something would happen. Well, the course was clearly marked. I mean, they had cones, signs, people everywhere at every single turn directing traffic. It was plain and obvious which direction I should go in. The only way that I could miss a turn was if my eyes were closed or I willfully chose to go in a new direction. Paul is saying, if you claim that God doesn't exist, you are willfully closing your eyes and ignoring the evidence. Just like an artist reveals his work, God reveals part of who he is through creation. Anyone at any time can know and see this evidence. It's called the teleological argument. Creation itself is the visible disclosure of an invisible God. And oftentimes, the scientific community will put the burden on Christians to prove the existence of God. It's kind of silly, and I think it's intellectually dishonest for them to do this. I mean, we're literally standing on a massive ball called Earth that's spinning in orbit. I'm looking at you, you're looking at me. We're really, this isn't fake, right? You're looking at me, I'm looking at you. And yet you tell me that I need to prove God exists? It's kind of silly. I got a little prop here. My son was upset that I took this out of the house. This is a Lego set, Hulkbuster. Um, It's one of his favorite. But if I have all the Legos in here, this isn't made. And if I put them all in here and just start shaking this, as hard as I can, I mean, how long would it take me for me to build this Hulkbuster perfectly? You know, would it take me a million tries to just shake it and eventually it's all gonna work out? Would it take me a billion years for me to shake this into existence? One million tries, a billion years? Regardless of how long you think it would take, we still need to answer one question. Who made the Lego blocks? Who and where did it come from? No matter what creation theory you attach yourself to or you look at and hold on to, you need to answer the question: who or where or what, where did this the material, the matter come from, and even to make this world? The modern approach and what is being taught in a lot of our schools is that no one plus nothing equals everything. Again, it is intellectually dishonest to claim that God doesn't exist. People who deny God exists are left with one choice suppress the truth and suppress the evidence of creation. The God of creation, the God of the Bible, has made it clear and obvious through his creation that he is powerful and worthy of our praise. See, Paul is using creation to hammer home the point that every person is guilty and deserves the wrath of God. So he's using creation for that argument. Listen again to what Paul says in verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We have no excuse. Understanding and seeing the glory of God in creation is not enough to save a person. Paul is making the point that the glory of God in creation is not enough to save a person, but rather condemn them. Deep down, think about this, deep down, if we know there is a God, and yet we choose our own will over his, then we are willfully choosing to suppress the truth and willfully willfully choosing to be our own God. And for that, we need to be held accountable. The gospel is crazy good news. Christians are not simply people who have escaped the wrath of God. Christians are people who have been reconciled to God. Christians are reunited into God's presence. Listen to how Paul puts this in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the flesh, in, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. As Christians, we don't have to live in fear of God's wrath because we have been brought near God by the blood of Christ. The hostility and the wrath that once separated us has been destroyed. Praise God. We don't have to wonder anymore, whether God is for us or against us. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. We can rest and live from a place of confidence, not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that Christ has done. I'll never forget the moment um, I asked Jen's parents for their blessing if I could marry her. Um, I was 22 years old, I flew to New Jersey on a top secret mission. Jen was here at the time, she had no idea, so I flew there. I showed up at their house, kinda unannounced. I was so nervous. I was fearful that things would not go as I hoped. Finally, after two hours of awkwardly hanging out with her parents, just in the back of my mind, when am I gonna ask this question? Just waiting for the right opportunity. I finally got to ask the big question. Would you give me your blessing to marry your daughter? We were in the kitchen. And, uh, and Jen's dad, as soon as I asked it, he just started looking, he looked down at the ground and he just started mumbling. All they did is say, well, 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 it was the most nerve wracking moment of my life. Jen's mom is standing here, she's looking at his dad and then she's looking at me and then she's looking at him and she's looking at me and she's looking at him like it was like back and forth, like she didn't even know what was gonna happen. Eventually, he realized that that was the best thing that could ever happen to his daughter, and so he said yes. (laughs) See, my point in bringing up this story is that one day, every single person will stand before a holy God and have to give an account. God will not be slow to answer, and he will not look awkwardly down at the ground. God, without hesitation... You will either say, welcome my child, or depart from me. John 3:36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. My prayer this morning is that the knowledge of the wrath of God would awaken in us a deep and sincere gratefulness for the grace of God and it would motivate us to share the gospel. Because the reality is we are surrounded by people who are rejecting Christ and God's wrath remains firm on them. See, later in the service, we're gonna be taking communion and the Lord's table is a reminder for us of the cost of our sin. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ. His body was broken and his blood was shed to reconcile us. The gospel reminds us that the cross is the place where God's grace and his wrath collided to bring us back to himself. Let's pray. Father God, we are we're overwhelmed at your goodness. Lord, we deserve your wrath and yet you speak a word of peace to us through the gospel. Lord, we thank you that Lord, we thank you that you are a wrathful God. Lord, but we also thank you and rejoice for Christ and the cross. Lord, teach us, lead us. I pray that we would leave here changed and transformed to be more like you. We love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.